Hello, everybody. Welcome to Police Off the Cuff. This is a special edition, Real Crime Stories. Uh, this is specifically for our Patreon customers. We put this on Patreon. People pay to actually see us, right? So we put this on Patreon for two weeks. They get their fill of this great story, and then we put it out on Anchor, and all, all the masses can hear this, these great real crime stories. Today, I have an amazing guest. He's actually a retired detective. His name is Tim Muldoon. He's a third-generation NYPD. He did 20 years on the job. He retired as a second-grade detective. For some reason, he got promoted and a month later retired. I, I, I don't even want to hear that story. That's not why. <laughs> well, it was a, a 12-year wait for the second grade. So, <laughs> so he, he waited for a long time. So it was more or less sticking it up the department's ass. Oh, yeah, you're going to come over here one month to 20 years. I'm leaving. You know? <laughs> that's so that's, that's his story. Anyway, he uh, started out in the 4-6 precinct. Uh, very, very busy precinct at that time. All right. Uh, went to um, narcotics. Uh, wound up in the DEA task force. On loan. On loan, and then he wound up in the 3-4 squad, which there was no busier place in the city in the 90s. It was a rock and roll uh, and talk about a busy, busy precinct. And then at the end of his career, he wound up in Manhattan North Homicide Squad. That's right. Uh, and um, you know something, I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Bill Cannon, obviously, the, the host of this show. I'm a retired sergeant from Manhattan North Homicide Squad, but Tim and I were in the Homicide Squad during different eras. Anyway, enough uh, background on this. Tim, welcome to the show. And Thank today, you, today you're going to talk about a homicide that occurred up in the 3-4 precinct in, I believe it was 1991? 91, yeah. And the time period is significant. But I just want to point out that when I was in the 4-6, we led the city in homicides. And when I was in the 3-4 squad, we led the city in homicides. So I don't know if I wasn't doing my job or why. <laughs> I think you may have like a, uh, a bit of a black cloud over you. I think so. And so you know, the other, the other funny thing, just a little aside, is that uh, Edmund Hartnett, the uh, former Yonkers police commissioner and NYPD chief, was your partner for a while in the force. That's right. That's right. I, was, I, I described myself as his launch pad. And uh, <laughs> reached the height. Did, did, was... did they call that the Dublin car? The two guys <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know what? Back in those days, the older guys remembered car 54. Yeah. Uh, so I was, he was Tootie, I was Muldoon. So car 54, <laughs> where are you? That's right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went on to bigger and better things. And uh, although my wife used to give me the business, she'd say every time, it seemed like every six months he was being promoted. <laughs> you big loser, you know. He's a good test taker, you know. Oh, he's smart, a good man. Smart guy, smart guy. Totally, totally. Yeah. So, anyway, so back to the case. So, anyway, this case occurred in August of 1991, and that's significant. Um, I'll explain later why that time period is significant, um, specifically to this case. But also, I just want to kind of explain a little bit about Washington Heights back in 1991, because sometimes I hear you know guys talk about you know Bensonhurst or this and that, and I'm a New York City guy, but like. I don't, you know, I don't know Benson Hurst. I don't know Canaris yet, you know, so just in case somebody doesn't know about the physical uh, location of Washington Heights, I just want to explain that it's from the 150s in Manhattan, Upper Manhattan to like the 190s, river to river. And if you're really from out of town, if you ever cross the George Washington Bridge and come into New York, that's Washington Heights. And um, back, in, back in those days, also I want to make it clear too, Washington Heights is, uh, in those days even today is predominantly Dominican. And it was little enclaves of Irish and 
old Jewish population, but um, but it's pretty Dominican. But at any rate, Washington Heights claim, unfortunate claim to fame was, um, sorry, Bill, is this picking up? Yeah, it's picking it up, but it's okay. It's nothing we can do about it right now. Let's get, we, did I just screw it? What's it? We can start all over. Can we? I'm, I'm sorry about that, though. Okay, so, um, so Washington Heights was uh, predominantly Dominican. Uh, there were pockets of old Irish, old Jewish residents, some of whom were Holocaust survivors. But unfortunately, the Heights was known primarily, legendarily, as the birthplace of crack. And um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it was definitely where crack took hold and took off. And well, the you know, geographically, um, the precinct was perfect for that because people come across the George Washington Bridge, they want to buy their drugs and fly back into New Jersey. And, yes. and on the other side, there was the Deegan Expressway. Right. There were so many ways to reach the heights. And even and to from the Bronx, you could just come south via Broadway, right? Yep. Yep. And if you're removing weight, it was, it was connected to all the major highways. Right. It was really, uh, it was a prime location. But, and then what happened was the, high, the crack epidemic came to really dominate uh, Washington Heights and the three, four precincts specifically. And um, which was unfortunate because there was a lot of people, you know, they are trying to live the American dream, but unfortunately the streets were taken over by, by, you know, by the drug dealers. So that was, and also in 1991, I think we actually led the city in homicides that year with 122. So it was really, uh, quite the place. So on the weekend that this, this event occurred, I'd actually spent the weekend in Washington, my family, we were visiting Washington DC and Georgetown like that. And this was a Monday, I returned to work and I dropped my family off and I went straight to work and um, there was like a lull in the action. I remember there was a kind of a quiet Monday. And I remember the Giants were playing a preseason game and I was able to duck in now and again and take a look at that. And just kind of enjoying the rare quiet moment and um, with that, uh, three, three people came into the office to report their friend Deborah missing. And I should add that even though um, there were three, like I guess we would call them yuppies at the time. Yuppies. <laughs> That's yeah, the got that word, yuppies. Yeah, because occasionally there was like a, a three, four. Because now there's much worse. Now there's something called millennials. That's oh my God. There's like three. Yuppies. All but, the implication of being a millennial. <laughs> Participation trophies, you know. Oh, my God. The three, four also would experience at times would be like a little gentrification burst. And it would never last. And But there'd be some people there. So anyway. We used to call them pioneers, right? They'd come yeah. there. In the covered wagons, the covered wagons and the <laughs> arrows would go shot through their you know. Yep. So, so anyway, uh, there was two guys and a woman came in to report their friend Deborah missing. So this is Monday evening. Uh, they told me that their, their friend, the last time they had contacted with her was on Thursday night. She never reported to work on Friday. And I think one of the women, one of the women was her friend and her supervisor at work. So they thought it was, you know, of course they're concerned and they had spent the weekend trying to contact her and looking for her, except actually physically looking for her. And um, if, so when anyway, I asked, you know, how old is she? I think she was 38. Yeah. Was she mentally, physically sound? And not only was she mentally sound, she was actually going for a PhD in psychology, which kind of turns out to be ironic. And um, so as you know, you, as you remember, a missing person, that would qualify as a missing personal informational. And the way those were handled back in that day anyway was, you'd call to make sure she wasn't hospitalized, you'd call to make sure if she wasn't incarcerated, you'd contact missing persons, and ultimately that was the end of it. And if a person well, was- Well, let, let me just stop you for a second though. Yeah. The, uh, there's one of the things on the police department that 
you could really, really get jammed oh. up. To it. And that's not treating a missing person case right. with the kind of attention that it deserves. Right. But people that aren't in this business, aren't police, they have to understand the police get missing person cases every single day. And right. basically, if you're over 18, you're emancipated, you're allowed to go about your business. And if you don't come home one night and your parents or someone wants to report you missing, you're not necessarily missing unless other factors exist and you can tell exactly us right off. exactly right and in this case the, the one thing that really stuck in my mind was you know the fact that somebody's missing for a couple of days i mean we've seen it all the time you know it's payday whoop, they're gone whatever it might be you know, romance whatever it might be and um but the thing that stuck struck me was that her, the, deborah's mother and sister-in-law who lived in california were flying in so that kind of really got my attention. Like that was obviously, this was exceptional behavior for her. So when I questioned these three folks about what was going on, they mentioned that uh, she lived on the Hillside Avenue and that she was subletting a room in her apartment to a young fellow who's a, a, a computer programmer. Mm -hmm. so asked, where is he? So they said he's sick, otherwise he would have been here. So I said, you know, give me the number, I'll give him a call. So I call him up and, uh, I said, you know, when's the last time you heard from Deborah? And, and he was kind of somewhat vague. So I said, uh, well, you know, be, be a little more specific. He said, well, I, I heard her come in on Thursday night. So I said, was she uh, alone? Was she speaking to anyone? Did you hear additional footsteps? And he hesitates and he says, no. So I said, is that an honest answer? And he hesitates again and he, he says, yes. So now I'm thinking maybe one of these guys has a romantic relationship with Deborah and he knows I'm with them. And he doesn't want to say this on the phone. So I, um, you know, hang up. That's the end of that. These people go on their way. And um, now at this point, were you thinking that this was suspicious or this was a special category missing person? Not, not necessarily. Um, well, I guess, I guess it was in the fact that the mother was coming in. If that wasn't, if that happened, hadn't in fact, she was gone for several days too. But that wasn't that unusual, actually, either. To have somebody missing for several. Oh, you don't know her, so yeah, you, you know. Yeah. So, but anyway, just I just said, you know what? I, I went to uh, to my colleague Joe Monturi, uh, who I just want to kind of explain. You know, Joe. He's a great guy and a yeah. grader, and had a lot of time on the job. And the fact that missing personal informational is such low priority. Many times, if you went to somebody with some sort of stature, and you said, "Hey, would you go out with me on a missing person informational?" <laughs> He might be like, no way. <laughs> yeah. But the beautiful thing about Joe was, even though he was a superstar, he never minded getting down and doing the grunt work, you know? Right, right. The canvas, he'd write that. Hey, way. that's part of being a detective. You've got to get your hands dirty, right? That's it. That's, that's it. how you got there in the first place. What are you going to now all of a sudden? You're just going to dine at certain hours? And, you know. That's true. <laughs> so, so Joe and I drove off to uh, Hillside. And when we walked into the lobby of the building, I noticed a very, very slight scent of a, of a decomposing body, a DOA. But that, it was, was, that was in the vestibule? Or? In the vestibule. Yeah. And I said to Joe, as a joke, I said, oh, there, there's her body. This is, this is put, put to bed. And, yeah. uh, but like I said, it was very, very slight. It wasn't, you know, overpowering. It could have been anything, really, but I just got that sense. So we go up to the apartment, and um, Julian answers the door. And he's not sick. And Julian is the roommate. The roommate. Okay. Who's subletting the room. And he's not sick. So that kind of raises me up. 
was it I came to find out later he in fact had been sick and whatever he had had broken before we got there. So that turned, so even though that raised my suspicion level, it turned out not to be, you know, an accurate uh, reason for it. Yes. So anyway, he lets us into the apartment. He's very cooperative. And actually, but when we enter the apartment, there's a very strong odor of uh, aerosol, air freshener, that kind of thing. Something that's trying to mask the smell of the- Right. And again, there's like a hint, a very slight hint of maybe a DOA smell, but I'm not really, you know- Once you get a smell of what a DOA smells like, it stays with you forever. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. And, uh, you know, there's no forgetting it, that's for sure, you're right. Yeah. And uh, so at any rate, we, he's very cooperative. You know, we ask, you know, can we see her luggage as if she took a trip? You know, can we look in her medicine cabinet in case she in fact has some sort of issues that other people don't know about? And um, again, like I said, she's been very cooperative. I go into her room and coincidentally, she was reading the same book. It was on her night table that I was reading at that time. And it was the name of a book called uh, Killing Mr. Watson. And uh, when this all shook out the way it eventually does, my wife, who's from Thailand and Buddhist, insisted that that was her trying to connect to me. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so who knows, maybe. So at any rate, um, like I say, he's totally cooperative. It's all good. We, uh, we leave the apartment. Now we go down into the basement. Now we go to the lobby again, but there's no smell any longer. So we go into the basement and we look through the basement trying to find the source of the original smell and uh, nothing. So we start to leave the building and we're standing on the front steps and this is where, this is where the, the time period becomes uh, maybe some significance. So a week before that, Jeffrey Dahmer had been arrested in Milwaukee and ultimately charged with killing 17 young men. And if you remember that case, there was an incident where one of the young men escaped from him and the cops returned the guy, to the young guy. Uh, to, yeah, no, that was horrendous. Yeah, that was horrendous. Right. So, so this, the thought of dropping the ball and, the, you know, just the, it just made me more keen on, pursuing this further. Well, you better do a, a thorough investigation on this. Right, and I turned to Joe and I said, listen, man, oh, I'm sorry, so to back up, in terms of the odor in the apartment, we, Joe asked him about it, and he said, oh, I haven't, been, I haven't been cleaning up after her cats, they made a mess, you know, I try to, I'm trying to make up for it now, but I'm playing catch up, so all right, that flies, you know, so, but now we're on the front steps, and I said to Joe, I said, I don't know about crap, uh, cat crap, but I know about DOAs, let's go back to the apartment. So we go back upstairs and uh, he lets us in again and we're just talking to him whenever. But now there's his room and Joe says to him, what's in here? He says, oh, that's my bedroom. So Joe says, um, can we look inside? So he says, yeah. So we open the door, we go in. So you know how just your standard procedure. So now Joe is actually doing a search of the bed, looking around the bedroom. So I'm standing by the door of the bedroom with this guy just you know, standard procedure, you know, you just, you know, you're trained with that and you just do it automatically. Sure. So Joe goes behind the, the bed and he pulls up this duffel bag and he says to the guy, what's in here? And the guy says, uh, a dirty laundry, wet towels, things like that. So Joe says, uh, can I look inside? So the guy says, yeah. But with that, like in a movie, the guy starts sweating. <laughs> so, wow. so I'm standing here, look at this guy like, whoa. So again, you know, not really getting it. Joe puts his hand in the bag. Now this was August. It, was, it had been a serious heat wave that weekend. Joe puts his hand in the bag and it comes out covered with this brown fluid. 
And Joe, we used to call him Steve McQueen, uh, but I now I call him the image of Steve McQueen because I found out Steve McQueen's really an a-hole. But <laughs> Joe pulls out, the, pulls out his hand, doesn't say anything, walks out of the bedroom, down the hall into the kitchen. So now me and Julian step out of the bedroom together and we're both watching Joe wash his hands very nonchalantly as if he does this every day of the week. <laughs> but again, now Julian is really starting. You can really see panic is setting in. So Joe, we, we enter the room. Joe brings the duffel bag around to where we're standing. And um, he says, oh, he doesn't say anything. He just takes the bag and he dumps it. And inside is a square uh, object that's wrapped in garbage bags. And, but it's like a rectangular, maybe, you know, two and a half feet by a foot and a half, something like that. And when it hits the ground, the floor, it twists ever so slightly. And I took the uh, image of the statue of Venus de Milo enters my mind. And I'm like, holy moly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm really in shock. I'm like, uh, and the thing falls on its side and, uh, now the guy's really streaming. I'm, I'm going for my gun. I'm going for Joe's cuffs. The, Joe cuts the bag open. And now you can see the flesh. And Joe says to the guy, uh, what's this? He says, it's her torso. The rest of it is in the garbage in the basement. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so naturally, we, we put him in custody. Now, is, was that, did that become a big, uh, was that an interrogation when you asked him that question? No, no, it never was a problem. Because I, I tell you about you, because we went to, of course, suppression hearings, right? Yes. And when I testified, uh, as I'm speaking to you all these years later, and it was probably came across more clearly then, I was, I was like in shock, frankly. So it was clearly this was not an interrogation. This was, you know, this was not a. a but, but Joe asked him, "What? What is that?" Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. It never it was never. I mean, we, well, I'm just you know the question that they would always ask: Was he free to go at that point? Was he under arrest at that point? You know, of course he wasn't. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, but we of course we you know it's funny and thinking about this case, this guy ended up with a great defense attorney, a great Manhattan defense attorney whose name I cannot recall, and um, so we actually went to a suppression hearing with that guy, and I, and if you get through something with this with this fellow, you're you're good to go. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, believe me, it was, it was examined. But um, so anyway, so at that point, you know, we, we, we take him into custody. Um, I returned to the precinct with him. Uh, Joe stayed on the scene. And I, they now this is all I'm being told. They contact emergency service and they contact crime scene. Uh, one amazing thing, too, at this point to remember, to know of, I should say, the mother and the brother-in-law had arrived in, in uh, New York already through, you know, through at the LaGuardia, and they were actually were driving to the uh, apartment. And the mother turned to the brother-in-law, her son-in-law, and said, I've got a bad feeling. Let's not go to the apartment. Let's go to a hotel, to the hotel, which was a blessing because what happened was uh, emergency service was going through the piles of, so I don't know if I mentioned that. So from the time we went into the building, into the apartment, and got bound to the basement, the super had taken the garbage out of the building. So when we came in, we smelled the garbage. Wow. The apartment, everything gets removed. We go back down, there, there's nothing there. So everything's in front of the building, how they are, those big buildings, is, you know, dozens of bags of garbage. Sure. So emergency service comes to the scene and now they're going through the bags, trying to find all the body parts. So we have the torso, we know where that is, but all the other parts are, are you know, missing. So 
they actually start laying the body parts out on the sidewalk, which I say was a blessing that the mother didn't show up. Yeah, that's, that's not a great New York moment. You know? Well, what they did, though, they actually tried to cover the view. Yeah. And, uh, but everybody was on rooftops. And, of course, there's cameras all over the place. Even well, back thank God, it was a little bit before that. <laughs> so, so that was not such an issue. But um, I said, thankfully, the mother had this instinct not to come to the, to, to the uh, actual location, because that would have been, been a real disaster. Disaster, yeah. Yeah. So, so at any rate, uh, I went back to the precinct um, with, with uh, Ju uh, Julian. Uh, Joel Potter joined me. And we spoke for six and a half, seven hours from about 11.30 at night to about six in the morning. And he ended up giving me, I actually have a copy of the statement here, not because I'm ghoulish, but a professor friend of mine would sometimes invite us to speak at his school. And I, this was a case I would do. So I actually made a copy of the statement, but it's 14 legal pages long. Wow. Yeah. And we- How old was, uh, was this perpetrator? 22. He was, that's another thing I want to mention too. He was 22 years old. He was a computer programmer. He was from, I don't think he was from Jamaica. He was Jamaican, but I don't think he was from Jamaica. And if I, if, if I had spoken to this guy, like say if, if I had suspected there was a, this woman was missing as a result of a homicide, if I had spoken to him at all, I would have just eliminated him immediately. He just, you know, if there's a type, he was not it. He was not the type, yeah. Or form. And even in the following the, the, the incarcerating him, he just, it just, there was something about him. He wasn't called like a, um, like a psychopath or something, but there was some sort of disconnect where he showed no empathy, no, no remorse at all for what he had done or no empathy for Deborah, who was his roommate. How, and, was, how was Deborah initially killed? Okay, so in this statement, she was stabbed to death, but in his statement, he initially describes he describes their, their their fatal encounter in a particular way, which I think he just reversed the roles. He never he made it sound like a, almost like a self defense, and I'll go into that. And then once he got past the point where she was dead, the statement I'm sure was 100% accurate. But the way he described it was that he was in the shower and that she came in and wanted to use the shower and was aggravated that he was in there so long, and she told him to get out. I want to use the shower. And he said that he still took his time. And that when he came out, she was waiting for him with a knife. And uh, he said she came at him with a knife and said he, she, he ran into her room. And uh, well, he's basically switching roles. He's, he's totally. blaming on her what he actually did. Totally. And uh, was, this, was this going to be or, or a sex crime? Oh, it, I mean, it was, a, a, I think it was a sexual assault to start That's with. That's what I'm saying. It didn't start out as a sexual assault. That's what I think, you know, and because um, he described how when he was wrestling with her for the knife, how his towel dropped off. Yeah. Oh, how he had her, he was holding her in a certain way. So it really uh, indicated to me that was what was going on. And, and then he said that they struggled over the knife and she was stabbed uh, several times and that the knife finally ended up in her throat. Yeah, yeah, I hate how that happens, you know? Yeah. And then she said to him, now look what you've done. Yeah. And, um, she collapsed to the floor and she passed. And he ended up sitting there with her for hours. And, uh, or it would seem like hours, because he said, by the time he kind of came to his senses, he was afraid about the, of the blood going out of, out of the apartment under the door or going through the floor, there was that, that much. So at that point, he gets the bright idea that he's gonna he's going to get rid of the body by burning it. 
So he takes her and he puts her in a bathtub and he surrounds her with paper, newspapers, and he lights it on fire. Oh my God. So, and the thing that was incredible was as he's going through this statement, the whole thing is what a problem I have. Look at me. I got this problem. I got this dead body. You know, like, you know, forget the dead body. It's just right, right, right. Forget that he just killed a human being. Right? Yeah. So he's so he starts this fire, and of course, it makes all sorts of smoke and whatnot. And um, the super ends up coming to the door, and uh, I think there was somebody else with the super, and he tells the super he left something on the stove and it burned, and that's that. And it was funny because later the super was interviewed on the news, like a couple of days later, and he was going on about how he knew this and he knew that, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> He didn't and know anything. Yeah. He was helping him fan the apartment out, you know. Yeah. So he was waving the door back and forth. So, uh, so he tried that. I actually made a list of the things that he. So he, on, on that day, he tried. He tried the. Um, let's see. So he tried the, the newspapers on on that day. He tried it again. It didn't. It just made things worse. Now he's got a. He's got burnt up shower curtains. He's got soot all over the place. It's a mess. And then he gets a phone call from one of the fellows who came to the precinct who's flying in from California, unrelated to anything, who Deborah had given him permission to spend the weekend in her apartment. Oh, God. <laughs> so now he's got somebody's coming to the apartment to stay on Friday. Also at this time, the phone's ringing. But you can't use the tub, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also at this time, the phone is ringing like crazy, her work, her friends, yeah, yeah. and that. And uh, so it was, so anyway, um, he, he tries to get rid of the body, tries to clean it up. Now people start coming over and I actually went through the statement and just Friday alone, five people came to the apartment, three of whom came in and had a beer with the guy and everything else. And it's just, you know, including the guy who's going to spend the weekend. That sounds like a, a psychopath, you know, that could, could do that. that you know, yeah. He Maybe has like no ego. Is, he just, he just, you know, pretends like nothing's, ha nothing's happened. Yeah. Well, the, and the funny thing was like when he was describing trying to dispose of the body, I said to him, I said, have you ever done anything like this before? <laughs> he says to me, no, I hate violence. <laughs> okay. But uh, so at any rate, he, he tried that on Friday. And then on, let's see, Saturday, he, let me say, like I said, I actually went through the statement. He went and he bought WD-40 and rubbing alcohol. And he tried to burn those two things to see if they would make an intense enough flame. And that didn't work. But, but you have to picture during this whole time, people are coming and going from the apartment you know, staying, like at one point a family comes over with two kids and they wa they're watching TV. Oh, God. And here's, you know, here's this body in the apartment. He's, he's bringing it back and forth from the tub to, the, to his bedroom and back and forth. So he decides that he's got a little bit of time and the answer is gasoline. And he tells me that he's envisioning, remember during the Vietnam War, the protesters, the monks would burn themselves and protest. Yeah. Yeah. So he says he's envisioning that. And he imagines if he uses the gasoline, that he'll just have a skeleton to dispose of. So, so he goes and he gets a gallon of gas. I guess this was before all these shows like Forensic Files and all of this stuff. Oh yeah, totally. Many, many years before all of that, you know. Yes. So he uh, goes and he um, gets a gallon of gas and he puts her in the tub and he pours some gasoline on. And um, when he lights it, as you might know, the, the, the fumes will ignite, not just the gasoline. That's how we get half our arsonists get caught. They set them. Yeah, yeah. So he lights it and it flashes on him. And, uh, and, he, and he tells me, I, I, I got singed. I almost got burned. He, you know, he's telling me this. And, and what non-police have to remember um, or be made aware of 
when you're talking to somebody like this all night, you know, in your mind, you're saying, what a nut, violent bag of crap. Yeah. But you're conveying to him total sympathy, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is normal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, thought that. Yeah. yeah. I wish you knew. I wish you told me. I would have told you the gasoline would. <laughs> like, what the frig? So, again, like I said, people are coming and going, I want to go all the detail, but he's jockeying her back and forth. So on Sunday, he decides the way to do it is with a power saw. And uh, he goes out and he buys one. And he comes back and it was, you know, I hate to be, get, I won't get too graphic, but, you know, I, I asked him, I said, what did you take off first? And he said, funny you should ask me that because I was thinking about that. Like it was a, this big dilemma. And when he finally decided to try to take off a limb, when the saw hit, now of course she's been dead since Friday morning, it's Sunday. It's been very, very hot all weekend. Oh, God. So when he hits her with the saw, he says to me, I ruined my sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you poor son of a gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> How in the world did you get by? So he ends up dismembering it. And even that, I, again, I don't want to get too graphic, but just out of respect to Deborah, but he starts giving me a lesson on making pieces small enough that you can manage them. And, he, and he's talking as if he's on a cooking show, you know, like, oh, and then you do this and do that. I'm like, well, thank you for that insight. You know, it's really, but the, but the, the funny thing was, as I mentioned earlier, we had spent the weekend in Washington, D.C. And I took a really detailed statement from him, very specific about when and where and how. And, and as he's describing setting her on fire, I'm thinking at that very moment, I'm at the Lincoln Memorial, you know? Yeah. He's describing chopping this off. And I'm thinking, I was at the Washington, it was just bizarre to have this parallel weekend running with his- um, No, it's, it's, it's amazing how, something this this horrendous you know um we we just take that as part of our job as part of uh, what we do you know part yeah. of the investigative process but this is definitely a ptsd event you know for anyone uh yeah. that Maybe. we think about this years later you know yeah well you know it's funny uh a friend of mine i went to camp with uh, very good friends with eddie hardnett and myself this my friend barry laddick and um he he ended up a detective like in the 17th and whatnot. Great, 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 great friend. And then we ended up working together after we retired in the board of ed together as investigators. And one day we were sitting there and he turned to me and he said, you know, you're effed up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, probably makes you say that. He said, you couldn't be where you were for all those years and not be effed up. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe he's right. But, it, uh, uh, you know, but it's something that, you know, we all see and you take it in for X amount of years. You took it in for 20 years. I took it in for almost 27 people do it. And then, you know, then you go back out to the, the world of normalcy or so if that, if yeah. you call it that, and these, these memories are always imprinted upon your brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, it's funny too about being in a three, four, uh, a lot of times people would come in and in time it would just be, get to be too much. And uh, which was which was fine. Nobody ever held anybody in. Like we were in macho men and women. There was we had some really outstanding female detectives. And but sometimes people knew this, this was not for them. Right, right. I got to get out of here. I've had enough. Yeah. yeah. And I always respected that. And I remember being on a going to the details of another homicide just very briefly. Um, you know, that was there was a drug stash house, and um, they'd gotten in and. They bound the guy, the guy who was protecting the stash house, his feet behind his back, his, uh, his feet to his hands behind his back, um, tape over his face, and that cut his throat in the bathtub. And he'd obviously struggle. You could see for the blood splatter. 
but he was overweight and I'm a full figured lad myself. <laughs> Pictures on the wall of his wife and kid and, and these different expressions of um, inspire himself to lose weight. He had exercise equipment in there. And I remember that kind of struck me because now I'm, I'm identifying with this guy to a degree. But I remember the guy who caught the case turned to me and said, this is it for me. And, uh, you know, he had reached the, reached the limit. Yeah. So, you know, it's something to, something to be aware of. And that was another thing too in the three, four, like the vast majority of our homicides were drug related. So you weren't investing your heart and soul in these, in these, vic in these victims, you know, the herps, you know. So it was, it was like, you know, I mean, it's still a human being and all that, but you know, they, you know, they're in the business and that's what, it, that's what comes with the business. Well, yeah, they have to, if they're in the drug trade, they got to expect, uh, you know, reciprocal violence is going to happen right. one day, you right. know. So when, but when you get an innocent, a true innocent victim, that's, that's another uh, story altogether. Yeah, well, that's, that's true with the, the, the crime of murder, period, you know. Yeah, yeah. Most of the murders that we got were, you know, people involved in the criminal enterprise of some sort. And when you got yeah. what we used to call a real victim, Right. That really was innocent, you know. That was yeah. that was the kind of case everyone wanted to work, right? As a, as opposed to community service homicide. Yeah, well, that's what they used to call it. Yeah. 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 Now you'd be locked up, anyway. But um, so I'm trying to figure I left off. So ah, uh, gosh. So that. So anyway, he he, he dismembers her, and um, it's Monday, and he he's alone in the apartment, and he realizes he's got a little bit of time, and that's when he takes. The other parts of the body down to the um, down to the basement to the uh, to the garbage in the basement, and he was just about to get rid of the torso when we showed up. And um, like I've mentioned before, I think if if we hadn't found that torso in the room and I had spoken to this guy, there was nothing to indicate that he would be somebody you would really want to take a close look at. Right. It was really a good. So really, what what broke sort of broke the case was you uh, recognizing the smell of a doa and and following that up and you know, yeah investigating that you know? yeah and like i said the, 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 the descent was was minuscule yeah and so it didn't like hit you over the head but it was enough you couldn't ignore yeah uh and i'm glad we didn't you know because it would have been a whole nother story but like i said we, we 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 talked through the night and uh you know you know how it is so now it's six o'clock in the morning six thirty in the morning and the DA comes up and uh, the DA catching the case was Pat Nunez. She was, she was excellent. She was, she was an excellent ADA and she was an excellent person, good fun. She went on to become a judge. And I always remember, you've, I'm sure you've been in the same situation. You've been up all night and you're going all night. Here comes the videotape. Get yourself in a position where you won't be seen nodding out. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Because <laughs> I remember I had a homicide one time where you would see my head sink forward. And, and <laughs> it's like, but- uh, well, I used to say, uh, on the, on the police department, if you're an active cop, you're so used to sleep deprivation that you could sleep with your head leaning against a nail, you know? That, that's true. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's funny, because uh, almost all my career, I never really, you know, I went around the, you know, never really had steady days. And uh, when I retired, about six months later, I woke up one day and I said, my God, I just spent the last 20 years exhausted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, I, this is, I feel good. <laughs> When you see what it's like to get a really a good night's sleep and you know yeah, uninterrupted right. sleep you know yes yeah, what's that all about but uh so what happened was because this was on the heels of the jeffrey dahmer case it got huge publicity and it was the lead story uh for, for more than one day and it was um in front page news and it was really really something and it was kind of funny because being from the three four i knew all the crime scene guys you know 
and I'd be sitting there watching the TV with my kid and the news would be on and I'd say, oh, I know that guy and I know this guy. And right. she goes, how come you're never on TV? And then, uh, so anyway, when this happened, I called my wife. I said, hey, tell, tell that kid to watch the news. <laughs> so when I finally saw her about three days later, I said, what do you think? She said, ah, just one time. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, no big deal. So, um, so anyway, like I said, it really was, it was big news and, um, you know, very, very high publicity. And um, so this was kind of new to me. I wasn't, I mean, I'd seen, you know, like Central Park cases and those kind of things, you know, from the fringe, but to actually be in the middle of it. And I really, um, you know, I didn't know what was expected of me. And I really wasn't interested in partaking in whatever was going on. And I was just interested in getting the job done. And that's that. And of course, the big bosses started showing up and um, they said, there's going to be a press conference. And I, that's great. So now I take the, take Julian, I'm looking to go downtown and somebody, I don't know how to get, I get a hold of it on the radio because we don't have cell phones. Get your butt back here. You know, <laughs> it's like you are going to be at the press conference. So, <laughs> so I remember going to the press conference and there was a, the chief of Manhattan detectives was there. And I got to tell you this, he never debriefed me about the case. I don't know how much he knew. And uh, so as he's being, questions are being shot at him, I know he's being asked questions he doesn't know the answer to. Right. And, and he would take the question, he'd say, that's something we can't divulge right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, this guy, this guy is smooth. That's how you, that's a, like the old I don't recall. You know? Yeah, there you go. So the, but the funny part was, I don't know if you remember Chris Borgen. Do you remember him? He was a, yes, former, he was a former detective. Yeah. yeah, and he became a news guy, like a CBS yeah. it was. So, so during the press conference, Chris Borgen is there. And I didn't know who the other guy was. The other guy asked the question. And Chris Borgen turns to the guy and says, let's say his name was Joe. Hey, Joe, I see your brain hasn't gotten any bigger. It's still asking the stupid questions. <laughs> and this guy, Joe, turns to Borgen. Hey, screw you, Borgen. The two of them are going to get into a fight. I'm like, I'm like, is this what every press conference is like? <laughs> it's like, uh, it was crazy. So um, it was crazy. So anyway, I go back upstairs. And uh, like I said, it's a big fuss. And God bless Joe Monturi. You know, because this is, you know, all sorts of accolades are being passed around, et cetera, et cetera. And Joe just completely stepped out of the spotlight. It was my show, you know, and, uh, you know, that's, that was just his nature. And, you know, I'm kind of enjoying it, you know, and, and whatnot. And uh, next thing I forget who some boss comes out and tells me the chief wants to see you in, in the Lieutenant's office. So I go in and uh, chief's behind the desk. It's just he and I just close the door. And I close the door and he comes around behind the desk. Now, prior to this, all my colleagues are telling me I'm going to get promoted out of this. I'm going to get second grade. <laughs> I already was waiting four years, which isn't long. I'm going to get second grade. And uh, I'm standing there and the chief comes behind the desk and he sticks his finger in my face. And he says, if I find out there's one effing thing wrong with this effing case, I'm going straight up your effing ass. <laughs> now work. get out, now get out of here. <laughs> so, so I go outside and everybody's uh, he like, hey, what's going on? I said, man, I'm lucky I got a job still. I don't know what's no, never mind grade. <laughs> Holy crow. He's like, gonna demote me. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, Jerry, you know, Jerry Giorgio, the legendary Jerry Giorgio, uh, great guy, great detective. And he used to always tell me, Muldoon, you know why you're third grade? Because there's no fourth grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so at any rate, I I found out years later, because I really didn't, I was like, where did that just come from? You know? Yeah. But uh, I found out. I, I, my memory of it was that it was quite a long time later that the chief couldn't believe that I had left the office on a missing person informational. He couldn't comprehend 
that one of his detectives had taken the initiative to leave the office on a missing person informational. And he felt there was something missing that we were hiding that he was unaware of. And he was afraid that he was going to get caught short. Oh, good. Was missing, was going to expose, be exposed. It's always about him, you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so it wasn't long, no. I just had to wait another eight years for grade. <laughs> well, you got grade, yeah. But uh, it was really... Uh, it was it was something, but uh, let, me, let me ask about the uh, the perpetrator. So he was twenty two years old. He was a computer uh, geek. He was from Jamaica. You said he, didn't, he was his family was Jamaican. I'm not sure if he was born there. He didn't speak oh. with an accent, but but what, what did he have any criminal background? No, nope, nothing. How about his psychological background? I really don't know. I really don't know. And that's kind of interesting too because I don't know, and I don't know what was ever found out down the line. But because it was so high profile. Um, there was a lot of uh, attorneys and psychiatrists were trying to get involved with this. And um, so, I, again, I don't know how, we, how it was ever. Well, you know, people are always amazed how someone goes from no criminal history whatsoever to doing a heinous murder like this, where they dismember a body. It just doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and again, psychologically, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. No, no. And, and the fact that he, you know, proposed that he insisted he didn't like violence and, it was just, obviously there was something missing, but just talking to him wouldn't give you that sense. But it was kind of funny. Even, even the story he told you where he put what he did on, on the, on the, right. that, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's gotta be some kind of psychological profile called like transference or something like that. I'm yeah, by I, no I, means a psychologist, but yeah, I, I wouldn't think that's gotta be some kind of, uh, you know, psychopathic uh, thing that, uh, you know, that, you know, I'm sure today they would, psychoanalyze this guy, uh, you know, a week till Sunday, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like I said, his defense attorney was excellent. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't examine that angle, you know, um, but I, I'm not sure I worked out. But the interesting thing was, because everybody was trying to get involved with this thing, Pat Nunez at the ADA at one point tells me, go to the tombs and look at the, at the visitor log and get the names of the people who are trying to see him. So I'm looking at the visitor log and you know when you get the sense that somebody's watching you? Yeah. And I turn around and he's in the cell directly behind me. And Julian is. And uh, I look at him and he looks at me. <laughs> and he goes like this to me. He's <laughs> like, my way back, hey, you know. So, uh, so at any rate, uh, so then if you want me, I can kind of went on from there. There was more when we went to hearings. Um, I, you know, I can't remember if we went to, I know we went to hearings. I can't remember if we went to, if we went to trial was just for one day, but my memory might be recalling the hearing process. So, like I said, he had, he had an excellent defense attorney. But what I recall specifically about the hearing, well, two things. One was in my DD-5, in my report, I had written when he said, um, when I said, did you hear anything? And he said, I don't know how to answer. And I said to him, it's simply yes or no. And he said, no. I had, for some reason, in the report, I had written yes in my report. Yeah. So now a good defense attorney can make hay out of something like this. So I turned to Pat. And I said, hey, Pat, I, whoa, I just, I just found this mistake. I said, the, the guy told me, yo, no, I wrote yes. And she says, typical guy, tell them no, they hear yes. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Yeah. Uh, so it happened though, so we go in and testify, blah, blah. But there was like maybe 10, eight, 10 people in the courtroom, all dark skin, I'm gonna assume they were family members, dressed beautifully, like they were going to church. And so they're, they're sitting in the courtroom, obviously it's his family. There's nobody else in the court. And uh, by this time, nobody cares anymore. It's moved on. There's other things on the front pages, et cetera. Right. 
And what happens was they put the videotape uh, statement in, the videotape confession, and the tape starts running. And one by one, the family members, it was sad, I'm sitting there watching them, would break down and get up and leave. This one would break down, get up and leave. And by the time the tape was over, they were all gone. They had all left the courtroom. And uh, I, I, I- But they probably just couldn't believe that he did what he did. No, they clearly couldn't. And I could understand that totally. And um, it was, you know, it was a shame more- You have family members that have dismembered bodies? No. <laughs> <laughs> not that I know of. I got to have to go back to the old, the old sod. Yeah, the, the old country maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But uh, so that was, so that was sad. And then um, uh, one other angle of this. So, so now the mother and uh, a sister came in for the for the court appearance, and Pat Nunez uh, was telling me, um, you know, I want you to meet the family. They want to meet you. And I just watched your presentation with Michael Keefe. Yes. Of his good friend, great cop. And he was talking about his philosophy in terms of getting emotionally invested. And I took the other angle. My angle was, I didn't want to know if you got invited to the prom. I didn't want to know what your favorite song was. Let me know enough to solve this case because I don't have enough heart for everybody in the world. So that was the way I dealt with it. So right. I told Pat, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So she's like, please, they're really nice people. They want to meet you. Um, and let me back up for a second, too, to point this out. The father subsequently had died. The father was actually notified by the press in California while we were still at the, at the location. That's how we learned about his daughter's death and dismemberment. Well, uh, I mean, what can you say? So, um, so Pat says to me, you know, as a personal favor, please come, come to dinner. So I was like, all right. A lot was going out to dinner with them. That's right. Yeah. right. So I was very reluctant and it turned out it was great. It was great. I, I felt so connected to these people and it just made a good, a, a sad job, but a good job, even more rewarding. And uh, I remember the mother, she was a you know, demure older woman. And she said to me at one point, um, she asked me about him and I said, you know, he, you know, didn't seem like that type. I said, as a matter of fact, um, in terms of his nature, he seemed a little bit like a little bit of feminine almost. And she said, do you think he's having a hard time in prison? <laughs> he might be. Yeah. She seemed to take a certain satisfaction from that, although she was too much of a lady to say it. Right. Um, so anyway, we had a really wonderful time. We really connected. Somehow, I got stuck with the bill. <laughs> oh my God! I never forget half it out when she forgot her wallet. You know. <laughs> so, oh my God! And I was gonna say, no wonder you just wanted a free meal like every cop, you know. Yeah, no, no. So I got the short end of the stick. Wow. Um. So, but but interesting enough. So here's a guy that doesn't want to invest emotionally, etc. So the mother was from a town called named Pacific Grove, out in the coast of California by Monterey Bay, and a very good friend of mine from college lived in Monterey. Mm -hmm. and sometime later, uh, my wife and I went out to visit my friend and I had the mother's address. And um, I went to uh, her house and we were there, maybe it was two in the afternoon or something. And I must've walked up and down in front of her house a hundred times. I wasn't sure, you know, you know, I mean, we really clicked that night, but yeah. you know, who knows, you know, the time and the pain and the loss, et cetera. You know, maybe I represent something she doesn't want to be 
be reminded of. And uh, ultimately, my wife said, just knock on the door. Just knock on the door. And I did. And we had the greatest reunion. And um, I was so glad we did. And then we went out to dinner that night, myself, the mother, and my wife. And we went to I hope party. someone else paid this time. No, I got stuck. But the funny you got part, stuck again? Oh, my God. <laughs> you can't make the lady. I'm old-fashioned. Yeah. But, but the funny part was a kind of a funny last note on the case was that um, we go to this restaurant, nothing fancy, but it's on the bay. And uh, they sit us at a table, and there's a table to our left. It's right on the window overlooking the bay. So I'm just about to say to the waiter, you know, could we have that table? And with that, I hear the owner saying, oh, Mr. Madden, welcome. Your regular table is available. That was John Madden. Oh, that John was Madden. That's, <laughs> so, a good, that's a good story to tell. Yeah, so I wasn't getting his table, that's for sure. Uh, so that's a, that's, oh, but the, the case did go to trial. How long did the trial last? Like I said, I don't think, I can't remember specifically if he took a plea after the hearings. Okay. After one day of trial, I can't remember. Um, yeah. If that was. That, that's. I mean, that's really a horrendous case, man. Is uh, you know, you wonder why this woman who was the victim that uh, was so smart and she was going for a PhD and she didn't um, sense danger with this guy. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's. 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 I've really never come to terms with that myself. You know, I just never really. Like I've said, I've said it tonight, today, and I'll. I'm sure I'll say it again. If I didn't find that torso in that room, or Joe didn't, or we didn't, whatever, you know, I don't know. It just uh, he could have gotten away with it. I think you know, if that, especially if that body had ended up in the garbage. I've had a case like that, and if you, if there's any time element, that the, the, those body parts end up like on eight stories of garbage, you're not getting it. And that's true, yeah. Yeah. So thankfully, that wasn't the way it went. But um, you know, it was just yeah, it was a real kind of brain mind-bending kind of experience, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, in my homicide career, we've had, you know, dismembered bodies and stuff like that. And it's, it's you know, you can't even fathom it. It's not a human experience that you wanna, wanna see, or you know, even when you tell people about it, it's, it's so horrible to try to explain it to them, you know? I'll tell you, it's, I'm actually smiling. This is, maybe I am twisted. Yeah. I remember we had a drug-related homicide, thankfully, and, they put the guy in a, in, a, in a refrigerator and then they, ch they chopped his legs off and put it on his chest. And I was there, I was there with my part, one of my partners, John Borges, and we both looked at each other and we said, wouldn't it have been simpler to put him on his stomach and bend his legs up? <laughs> <laughs> and John had a great line he would use very often. In situations like this, John says, do, we, do you think we just catch the stupid ones? <laughs> <laughs> what uh, the perpetrator in this? Uh, what was this? What sentence did he receive? He got fifteen to life. I don't know if he's. Um, he's fifteen to life. Yeah. Yep. So I actually, it's funny because in, in looking this up again, I actually came across a letter that one of those friends had written to the parole board in two thousand and six to try to keep him in. So I imagine all these years later, he must be out. I would. Must be out. Yeah, he must be out. I doubt he got. I doubt he got released at that point. I'm sure. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that had something to do with the, with the attorney. You know, sometimes that happens. You get these, you know, these exceptional defense attorneys and, you know, ADAs are maybe willing to. I mean, that to me, that's, that has 25 to life written all over it or life without parole written all over it. I don't, I can't understand a 15 to life on a case like that. Yeah. 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 That was, yeah, that was it. 15 to life. That, Cause like I said, I sent a letter from 2006. I mean, I wouldn't be, if that was a family member of mine, I wouldn't be satisfied with that sentence. No. 
No, I've seen, and I've seen it before. I've seen it in worst cases before where they, you know, 15 to life. And I remember one time the DA was afraid, it was a, a long, um, how should I put it, interview. It wasn't an interrogation because the guy wasn't in custody. <clears throat> but by the time he confessed, we were together maybe five hours. And, you know, there comes a question whether that's too long. And I remember the DA ended up taking a 15-year plea um, on that case because he was afraid of how the jury would go with the, because, with the, you know, you can, you can win in a suppression hearing, but the jury themselves can decide it was too long. Sure. And then he was afraid of that. He took a 15-year plea. And after he took the plea, he talked to the jurors, and they all said, yeah, half, not half, but some of them said, we thought that was too long, but we didn't care. And he was, then he kicked himself in the butt for taking the plea. Well, but, it's, it's always uh, rolling the dice for a prosecutor to, uh, you know, to, to give it to the jury and see what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Know? It just takes one screwball, you know, and uh, you've got a problem, you know. I'm, you know, I had a case again years ago where I was going out with the lead, the uh, ADA, and he told the second seed who was picking the jury, do not pick this guy. And the guy got the jury, and she said, I couldn't avoid it. There was a, you know, a good reason. She was an excellent ADA herself. And sure as hell, that guy, when it came time to deliberate, he just took his chair and faced the corner and never spoke. <laughs> so he hung the jury up. You know, but like you say, it's a roll of the dice. You don't know... Uh, you know, what, they call that the voix d'oeuvre or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I can I don't speak French, but I yeah, know yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's something like that where they, yeah. they the prosecution and defense can each get like two uh, people that they don't have to explain why they don't like them. You know, just right, right. Two, yeah, yeah. But who knew? Like, I just want that one. Well, yeah, Tim, we're at, we're almost at, at we're almost at a close to an hour. Uh, wow, wow. The, uh, a super interesting case and uh, well, I'm glad you uh, found it interesting yeah I, I want to thank you for coming on the show you know oh I've enjoyed it just the most elite detectives come on uh, uh nice to say you know, even if I'm not even if, stories you know even you know. if I was in first grade yeah <laughs> and even though you even though you you were dopey enough to retire after <laughs> after a month of having second grade you know there's a, there's a reason for that there's a reason for that. I'll, I'll still uh yeah. I'll still yeah, no, face no, 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 but, it was. Um, yeah, I, you want I just wanted. To, I just want to explain. I was in the class of '79. Mm -hmm. I 20 came up. There were a lot of jobs out there, available. Yeah. You know, guys weren't retiring in droves yet, so that that played a bit of a role in it too. And then so then there's also pension roulette, which was still in effect back then. Yeah, so, a couple of factors there, you know. But uh, but I regret it every time my pension check comes in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. You were, you know, you were on the road to, uh, you know, you would have definitely gotten first grade down the road. You know, yeah. More years. They were, you know, there's because of Comstat, they started giving out grade much yeah. more often than they gave in years past. I remember when I went to the two three squad in 1997. Uh, I was a sergeant. I had the rip. That was a superstar squad. Not yeah. a single guy in that squad had grade. Same thing in the in the three four. I think Jer I think uh, Joe Montreux was the only guy with grade. Yeah, and it was unbelievable. It was super, you know. Just uh, that was when all all the chiefs, little suck boys and suck girls, got grade. Yeah, all the hardworking detectives were passed over. It was such a it was a contract. It was political. Well, I, I might have mentioned in my own career, I would get calls every six months. Hey, you're number three. You're number four. You're number this, and then to come out, and I was gone. Right. And, right. Yeah, I might have described, I was the Susan Lucci of grade. Oh, well, well, yeah, they say, oh, you're on the grid. Yeah, what, <laughs> what grid? What grid am I on? That grid's bullshit. It's looking to pick up a phone and say, move my guy ahead. Yeah. Like I gotta tell you, Muldoon, you know? Some, some, one serious, on a serious note about that, we had a guy in the 
who came to us from narcotics and he was so gifted and he was going to really, he was going to set a new standard. And because he needed the money and his family and whatnot, he went and ended up driving a deputy mayor or something. And I always pointed to him to say, people are dead today that would be alive if he had actually didn't have to go that way to get great. Yeah, yeah. paid and worked on cases. Hey, we're all masters of our own destiny, you know? Yeah. No, I don't hold it against him at all. Yeah. Just that was the system, we you know? We make our own choices. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he was a solid guy and he did what he had to do for his family. Yeah. Too bad the job made it that it had to be that way, you know? But, but on the whole, no complaints. Tim, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, nah, nothing. It's all good. Just, it's all good. All right, listen, I'm Bill Cannon. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, and I'd like to uh, thank our guest once again, retired second grade for one month detective, Tim Muldoon. Thanks so much, Phil. Bye-bye. Thank you.